in 2016 when we had our last constituency session, there were some representatives from the Southern Union that were here. They had been to other constituency sessions and uh, meetings, and they said, there's something different here in Carolina. Yeah. You don't have a constituency session, you have a constituency camp meeting. <laughs> Those of you who've been to Lake Junaluska know that whenever we have a speaker come up and speak, one of the things I like to do is not only pray for the speaker, but I like to for have us pray for ourselves. And we do that by singing that song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. Because we're asking God to open up our hearts. So as I pray for Pastor Mark, would you join me as we also pray that the Spirit of the Living God will fall afresh on us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Gracious Father in heaven, how blessed we have been to have Pastor Mark here with us for the messages from your precious word that he has brought, how we have been lifted closer to Jesus as a result of dwelling upon the messages from your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, as he gives us this evening's message and as we close the hours of your Sabbath day, anoint him with your blessing. For we ask this for him and for ourselves as we open our hearts to the Spirit of the living God. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. joy it's been to be with you over the last few days. I've really sensed a camaraderie, a deep spiritual commitment on the part of your leadership, the Elder Louie, Elder Moyer, the entire team, Elder Russell. And so it's been really a, a joy for Tini, for me to be here. I've seen so many of you that we've met either at other occasions at our camp meeting, at your camp meeting at Lake Junaluska. We've been there on a number of occasions, always been blessed there. And we have had a number of you we've worked with in evangelistic meetings. So it's been just a joy for us. We've been really impressed with the campground, its neatness, attractiveness, uh, the care with which it's taken to make it look beautiful. And Today we went out and took a great walk by the lake and walked up on that hill to the highest point, taking a few deep breaths, <laughs> sitting on the top at the picnic tables, looking over the lake and walked back around. And so it's been a real joy. We leave immediately after the meeting because we're going back to our Living Hope School of Evangelism and our retreat center there. Next week, I preach at our home church. Usually try to preach there about once a month and have many guests, many visitors coming. And uh, then we are planting a new church in a community called Warrington. Saturday night, I have a meeting with the uh, community leaders. We are organizing a number of events for that community and we're meeting with some of the community leaders and have a number of meetings at the general conference. So. Then upcoming, we have um, pastors coming to our retreat center and many retreats between now and the first of the year. Toward the end of this year, in December 1, Tini and I will go to Serbia, where I have in Belgrade and Novosad short evangelistic meetings. So our lives are full and rich. I'm so thankful to be retired because I don't know what I would do if I were working. I don't know I'd have, how I'd have all the time to do everything. So 
we are just very, very thankful. We're blessed, you know, by the Lord, and he gives us energy and strength, and our hearts are really thankful for that. Our topic this afternoon is revival and a finished work. When you look out at the world and we talk about a finished work, it seems if you simply look at statistics, almost impossible. Let me give you an example. Of the 7 billion plus people on the face of the planet, only approximately 30% or 2.4 billion are Christians. Now it gets more challenging. There are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world, 1.1 billion agnostics and atheists, 900 million Hindus, 376 million Buddhists, plus thousands of other religious groups. So the question is, how can we reach them? But if you boil that down, we've got almost 22 million now Seventh-day Adventists in the world. It's about 21. This, you know, we are growing so rapidly, baptizing about a million people a year. So as the result of that, we keep updating our figures, but we've got about 21.9 million to be exact members, Seventh-day Adventists. But we are only approximately 1% of all the Christians in the world and only a fraction of a percent, less than 1% of the world's population. So you ask yourself the question, how will the work of God on earth ever be finished? Is it possible for the gospel in the context of the three angels' messages to circle the globe in a very relatively short time? What will give us the breakthrough in the proclamation of the gospel that we long for? How can we even think that the gospel would be finished in this generation when we have such a small percentage of Seventh-day Adventists? Well, first, the mission is God's. And that God is working in ways beyond statistics that we do not know. God's working in the Muslim world. Not long ago, I met with one of our Muslim coordinators, and he was telling me the story that there are visions and dreams that are taking place in the Muslim community, and people are being led to our Adventist faith. In fact, one large clan of Muslims living out in the desert began, the leader of that clan began to have visions, and he began to have visions of a book where he could learn the truth of God, about God's last day people. He began to have visions even about the Sabbath, sought out Seventh-day Adventist, and that whole clan is currently being studied with. A number of years ago, and I'll be quite vague in this story purposely, a number of years ago, one of our Adventist lay people began to visit a Muslim mosque in a particular country that was a Muslim country. This Muslim lay person would dress as a Muslim, went into the mosque, he began talking to the head imam of the mosque. This imam had a national radio program that went throughout the Middle East and millions of Muslim followers. The more they talked, the Muslim leader asked this Adventist lay person, do you Seventh-day Adventists believe that Jesus, Isa, is coming soon. And our Adventist layperson said, yes, we do. How soon do you believe he's coming? Because we Muslims believe he's coming sooner than you do, you Christians do. That led to discussions. The layperson contacted the Adventist church and he said, I think I could arrange a secret meeting for you and one of your leaders. So one of our leaders flew to that particular country and met with this imam. And the imam said, I'd like you to come to my home and share some of the things we've been talking about. They met in a park, and they walked for many, many uh, hours together. The Adventist leader went to the home of this imam, and there he, they had a great feast, and there were other imams there. Our Adventist leader shared the word of God, talked to him about the second coming of Christ. They invited a number of Adventist leaders to come back, and about four of our leaders came back to present what Adventists believe on the second coming of Christ. And this imam said to him, he said, I'm going to go on the national radio, 
all across the Middle East, and it'll be carried through the world. And tell Muslims, if you really want to know about the second coming of Christ, Adventists know more than we know, go to their churches. Now, unfortunately, this imam developed cancer and died before he could make that announcement. But yet, it reminds us that mission is God's, that God is working in ways we don't understand through his Holy Spirit. He's bypassing all human structures and working in the Islamic world, in the Hindu world, working among agnostics, working among atheists. When we were preaching in the Kremlin Auditorium, I got an invitation to come out to Pushina. Now, Pushina was a city that was closed in Russia. It was not even on the map. It was a city of biological scientists that worked on biological warfare. I was invited to that city to lecture to scientists. I thought we might have five or 10. I came into an auditorium personally in Pushina. You will not find it even on Russian maps. As I came there, there were a thousand scientists and their families. It was a closed city. Nobody could get in. They asked me to give net lectures for three nights. One, can you believe the Bible? Two, can you um, believe that Christ is the Messiah? And three, is Jesus coming soon? They said, Pastor, you will lecture for an hour. Then the scientists will ask you questions for an hour. I wasn't concerned about the lecture too much, but I was really concerned about those questions. But you know, I thought they were going to ask me about radiocarbon dating. I thought they'd ask me about complex chemistry questions, questions uh, about creation evolution. They asked me questions like this. If God is so good, why is the world so bad? How do you pray? How do you have a happy marriage? At the end of three days, I, after a while, we had broken down prejudice. And I was talking to a small group of these scientists after the meeting, and I said to them, may I ask you a question? They said, yeah. I said, why didn't you ask me any hard questions about science? They said, Pastor Mark, we've had 40 years of atheism, and we know it doesn't work. Our only question is, is Christianity a viable alternative? That's our only question. We know atheism is not where we want to go. And what it showed me was that God is working. God is doing some amazing things. See, and God invites us to cooperate with him in finishing his work because it's God that's going to finish the work. He is going to cut it short in righteousness. He has given to us the promise of his spirit. So beyond what our eyes can see, beyond what our ears can hear, his spirit is working among the Muslim people. His spirit is working among Hindus and atheists. And what God says to us is, I've given you the spirit to fill you with the Holy Spirit so you can go out and cooperate with me in reaching the world. So we have the privilege of cooperating with God. God not only gives us the great commission in Matthew chapter 28 where he says go make disciples of all nations baptizing them to the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things wherever I've commanded you and lo I'm with you always even to the end of the world. He not only gives us the great commission, but he gives us the great promise. And here's the great promise. It was given to the disciples and it's given to us. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. That's your closest place around you. In Judea, next the further province, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So Jesus gives to the disciples the promise. 120 met in the upper room, and as I shared the other night, the population was about 60 million in the Roman Empire, about one disciple to about 500,000 people. But if you study the book of Acts, something miraculously happened. One Roman writer wrote this. He said, you Christians are everywhere. You're in our armies, you're in our navies, you're in our senate. In 40 short years, most students of Christian sociology indicate that the church went from about 120 believers to 1 million. So it went from 1 to 500,000, that's one Christian to 500,000, to one Christian to every 60 people in the empire. 
That's a miracle. That's an amazing miracle when you think about it. How did that happen? The Spirit had already been working in that empire. Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of time had come. And so the fullness of time had come. The time was right. Society was prepared. And when that fullness of time came, God poured out his spirit in an abundant measure and accomplished in a few short years what human efforts, human methods, and human organization could not accomplish in centuries. Now, there are three things I want to study with you this afternoon about Jesus' promise, this promise that they were to wait till the Holy Spirit was poured out, this promise that the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit would be poured out upon them, they'd be witnesses. First, the all-encompassing nature of the promise. Second, the all-encompassing conditions to receive the promise. And thirdly, the all-empowering results of the promise. So we begin with the all-encompassing nature of the promise. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on individuals throughout the Old Testament. Moses was filled with the Spirit. Elijah was filled with the Spirit. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Bible prophets. But never before in history, up until the very first century when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, was the Holy Spirit poured out on the corporate church. So you have the all-encompassing nature of the promise. Look, Acts 1, verse 14 and 15. These, what's the next word? All continued with one accord, that's unity, in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. As they prayed, confessing their sins, seeking God for the power to proclaim his grace, the floodgates of heaven opened, and the rain of the Spirit poured down upon them. So this was the first time that all of heaven's power was poured out. It was poured out on the corporate church. They prayed together. Acts 2, verse 4. They were, what's the next word? All filled with the Holy Spirit. Began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were all filled. So here is a promise that as the church prays, God is going to pour out his spirit on a corporate church, not everybody, but those who are dedicated, committed, consecrated, seeking him. There is a movement that will take place, not merely one man here, one woman there, one child there, but a divine movement that will take place in the last days of earth's history where the spirit moves through the church like it did in the first century, and the spirit that has been witnessing in the hearts of the Muslims and Hindus and atheists and skeptics and secularists, that spirit that has been stirring the, the hearts, the fullness of time will come. That spirit will stir the hearts of God's people. The earth will be lighted with the glory of God. Notice Acts 2, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, what is happening here is Peter is speaking, recorded by Luke, that what took place in Pentecost is going to take place again. He's quoting the prophecies of Joel, chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the last days. In what days, everybody? The last days. Says God. Who says this? If God says it, I believe it. What about you? The skeptics can say, the work of God's never going to be finished because you're only a fraction of the world's population. Adventists only have 21.7 million people in the light of 7 plus billion people. How can you ever think you're going to finish the work? Because we believe the promises of God. Because we believe what God says in his word. That it shall come to pass. Not it might come to pass. Not it maybe will come to pass. It what? Shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on what? All flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. That word means proclaim. Young people will proclaim God's message. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my manservants and my maidservants, I will pour out my flesh in those days. God has no respecter of gender. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out without measure on your sons and daughters. 
God is no respect of age. Thank God. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out without measure on your what? Young and old. God is no respect of status. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out without measure on manservants and maidservants. This is the all-encompassing nature of the promise. Those who meet the conditions, those who are on their knees praying, those who saturate their minds with the Word of God, those that are committed to the witness of Christ in this final last generation, those men and women will be filled with the Spirit to go out to proclaim God's last day message. I love this statement by Ellen White. The lapse of time, that means the passing of time, has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. Now, we read that parting promise in Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus says that uh, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So the lapse of time has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. It is not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of his grace do not flow earthward to men. If the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it is because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. There's our word again. If what? All were willing. I'm willing. Are you willing? Amen. If all were willing, next word, all would be filled with the Spirit. Whenever the need of the Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declension, and death. Whenever minor manners occupy the attention. In your local church, have you ever debated over minor matters? Have you ever sat on a church board where in the perspective of eternity, in the light of reaching your community for Christ, in the light of taking the gospel to every door in your community, you've debated on the color of the carpet for the church sanctuary. Have you ever debated over minor matters? Whatever minor matters occupy the attention. The divine power, which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church, and which would bring all other blessings in its train, is lacking, though offered in infinite plenitude. Infinite plenitude. The abundance of the Spirit is waiting for us to claim. And throughout the centuries, throughout the generations, as churches have come and sought God, His Spirit has been poured out in that community. But something's going to happen corporately to the Adventist church worldwide there will be a representative number of people whose affections are turned from earth to heaven, who are seeking God for the outpouring of the latter rain. And the Spirit will be poured out on young and old, on men and women, on people regardless of their status. Throughout the Old Testament, God poured out the Holy, His Holy Spirit on individuals. But at Pentecost, He'll pour out His Holy Spirit on, the, on his church. The promise of the Spirit is for you. It's for me. It's for your conference. It's for Carolina. It's for the Southern Union. It's for the North American Division. It's for the General Conference worldwide. We may see some of the minor showers of the latter rain being poured out now, but we will see the abundance of the rain as it falls. So this leads us to a couple very practical questions. How can I receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit personally? And how can the church receive the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit corporately? How can our conference receive that? How can the union, the North American division, how can the general conference receive it? Let's look at some of these all-embracing conditions. We saw the all-embracing nature of the promise. What are some of the all-embracing conditions? Well, one, of course, we've been studying. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. This one accord, they were unified in praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to reach the world. 
one of the most powerful things that you can do when you leave this place is to go home and organize a small prayer group that meets before your church on Sabbath morning, after your church, or sometime during the week to seek the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there on your church. I have seen God through our over 50 years of ministry work miracles through prayer groups. We were going to hold an evangelistic meeting in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. We were to be in the John Guy's Stadium. Just before we came, the, there was a march, a protest march in the streets because the government of that nation had sold off the land, much of the land with its natural resources to multinational companies. They sold off the mineral rights and the timber rights, but yet the people weren't getting the benefit of that and the nation was really being ripped off for minor amounts. Young people from the university and others marched in the streets. The police overreacted, shot into the crowd and killed seven young people. As the result of that, there were riots in the streets, cars were burned, stores were smashed. It was a very difficult time. There was a curfew from seven o'clock at night till seven o'clock in the morning. When we arrived there, people asked, are you gonna go? And we said, God hasn't told us not to, we trust his grace and we went. But we were unable, according to the government, to have our meetings because they had the curfew. Our meetings were to be opened on Friday night. We organized through that nation a thousand radical prayers. People that would pray radically, people that would seek God and petition his grace. Tini and I knelt in a room with over a hundred other people hot, sweating, listening to these poor Papua New Guineans pour out their souls to God, praying that he would change the minds of the political officials, praying that the thing would stabilize. Uh, Monday, curfew. Tuesday, curfew. Thursday, Wednesday, curfew. Thursday, curfew. Thursday night, the parliament met. When I got up on Friday morning, we had told our staff, set up the stadium during the day on Thursday because we believe God's gonna work a miracle. I get up Friday morning, here were the headlines in the newspaper. Parliament meets until 2 a.m. Curfew lifted. Seventh-day Adventists can have their meeting at Port Moresby Sir John Guy's Stadium. Headlines in the newspaper, we could not have bought that coverage. Every single news media carried it. Then the article said this, the entire nation is invited to the stadium. The prime minister of the country will introduce Pastor Finley, and he, the prime minister will give a speech. Then Pastor Finley will preach on how the nation can have peace. That night, Sir John Moro Mortarotti got up, introduced me. A hundred thousand people were at the stadium that night. 100,000 people continued night after night in our evangelistic meetings. In the first appeal, 10,000 came forward for baptism. The mighty power of the Holy Spirit came down. They continued. Notice what the text says. These all did what? They prayed once and they quit, right? They prayed twice and they quit. What's the next word? These all continued with one accord in unity. When you leave this place and you go back and organize prayer groups in your church that pray week in and week out, there will be a breakthrough in your community. God will lead people who his Holy Spirit is working on already. Acts of the Apostles 109, many are on the verge of the kingdom waiting only to be gathered in. Prayers go up wistfully to heaven, tears, longing for people, longing for light and truth. When we're praying, God is a divine matchmaker. He can lead those whose hearts are already open in our community to our churches. Notice, Review and Herald, August 26, 1886. We should pray as earnestly for the descent of the Holy Spirit as the disciples prayed on the day of Pentecost. I want to do that, don't you? Notice, it says... Zechariah 10.1, ask the Lord for rain 
in the time of the latter rain. Is this the time of the latter rain? Notice the comment. Testimonies, volume 8, page 23. My brothers and sisters, plead for the Holy Spirit. God stands back of every promise he has made. Has God promised to pour out his spirit on us individually? Has he done that? Has Carolina? Carolina, has God done that? Has he promised to pour out his spirit on the church? Will God stand back of his promise? Is there anything that God cannot do? Are you Bible students? Should I ask my question again? Is there anything God cannot do? Yes, no, yes, no, yes. What does the Bible say in Hebrews? It is impossible for God to lie. So there's something that God cannot do, isn't it? Because if he lied, it would be contrary to his what? Nature. So therefore, when God makes a promise, he cannot lie. He will stand behind every promise he has made. And as he promised to pour out his Holy Spirit on you and me and our churches as we pray, has he promised to do that? Will he do that? Because he cannot do what? Lie, and we can trust his promises. The reason God invites us to earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit is not because he's unprepared to give us the Spirit, but it's because we're unprepared to receive it. And as we pray, our hearts become one with the heart of God. As we pray, our lives come in harmony with God. And as we pray, our God comes in, reveals to us areas in our life that are keeping us from being the effective witnesses he wants us to be. And as we're praying for others, God does something in our own life. So prayer becomes the fulcrum that God pries the stones of sin out of our life so he could do something special for us. Is it possible that at times in our local churches and even beyond, we've substituted human plans, human methods, an organization, as important as they are for the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice Review and Herald, March 2, 1987. Now, the reason it's 1987, it's a reprint of an earlier article. Do not rest satisfied that in the ordinary course of the season, the rain will fall. Ask for it. In other words, don't be complacent. Don't be saying, well, someday the latter rain is going to come and that's all up to God. Not at all. Ask for it. We must seek his favors with our whole heart if the showers of his grace are to come upon us. When the disciples met together in the upper room, they put away all differences. Why? Because it was something bigger than their petty differences, something bigger than their petty arguments, something bigger than their jealousies and conflict over power and position before the cross, James and John came to Jesus and they said, when you come into your kingdom, they thought it was an earthly kingdom, who's going to sit on your right hand and who's going to sit on your left? They wanted positions of honor, prestige, power. But they came to the place where they put away all their differences, all their desire for the supremacy. They came close together in Christian fellowship. They drew nearer and nearer to God. And after this, they realized what a privilege had been theirs in being permitted to associate so closely with Christ. Acts the Apostles 37 says, sadness filled their hearts as they thought of how many times they had grieved him. By their slowness of comprehension, their failure to understand the lessons that for their good he was trying to teach them. But there, in that upper room, they began to recognize the beauty of his life. They began to see the love of God revealed. They began to sense that every time he touched divine eyes and they were touched human eyes and they were open, he wanted to touch the eyes of their minds so they'd comprehend his love and grace. Every time he touched deaf ears, deaf ears and they were unstopped, he wanted, they sensed that he wanted to touch their ears so they could hear the divine mysteries of the kingdom. Every time he healed palsied bodies, they understood now that he wanted to heal their palsied souls. They began to sense the majesty, the greatness of Christ. They began to consider the cross of Calvary. These were days of deep 
prep these days of preparation were days of deep heart searching. They began to meditate upon the cross. It was later that Paul, who of course was not in the upper room, but who met Christ on Damascus Road, it was later that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, as he grasped the majesty of the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus never sinned, but on the cross, he took the guilt of sin. He took the shame of sin. He took the condemnation of sin upon himself. And when Jesus hung on the cross, the reason he said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? is because he felt God abandoned. And as the Tsar of Ages says, he did not see himself coming through the portals of the tomb, and death did not present him as coming forth as conqueror. So Jesus was willing to go into the grave and never come out. He was willing to be separated from the Father forever if you could be in heaven. He was willing there to have his heart torn apart from the heart of God. That's why Galatians 3 Verse 13 says, cursed is everyone that dies, on, that's hung on the tree. So Jesus bore that curse hanging there. God longs for the church once again to come to the realization of the matchless charms of Christ. God longs that in our prayer life we recognize that Jesus wants to save us more than we want to be saved. And what is it that motivates our witness? What is it that motivates us to get away from the TV set and go out and knock on a door and give a piece of literature? What is it that motivates us to share Christ with a work colleague? It is the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, the love of Christ compels us, it motivates us. We're motivated not by the desire to have some article in a conference newspaper, although we praise God for that. We're motivated not to be the leading soul winner in the Carolina conference. Those motivations are weak, they're paltry. But when you're motivated by the cross, when you see that Christ loves you so much he wants you in heaven, when you see that Christ has created every human being unique and special, and he wants them to live in eternity, when you see, when you're motivated by the cross of Christ, and you come to Jesus and your heart is broken over the cross, and you long to have your sins forgiven. You don't want one thing between you and Jesus. You long to be filled with his spirit. I want to share with you two experiences within, one within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, one without, when mighty revival took place. And look at that tonight and some of the principles of that. One of the mighty revivals in the Adventist Church was when A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner preached in 1888. In fact, Ellen White said that that was the beginning of the latter rain. Now, if that is true, if what happened in 1888 was the beginning of the latter rain, and you're aware of the fact that in the 1800s, a Sunday law was being pushed through Congress in the United States. In 1880, the Blair Bill came to Congress. In fact, A.T. Jones was a great religious liberty uh, a proponent, and he defended before the United States Congress religious liberty. So things were being set. In that conference that took place in 1888, Ellen White talks about the matchless charms of Christ, that Christ was uplifted in such an amazing way, and there was various reactions to that. And that's the subject of another day. Some people received the message, other people were very, um, very complacent about it, and other people rejected it. But shortly after 1888, Ellen White traveled with Jones and Wagner to South Lancaster, Massachusetts. She traveled to camp meetings throughout the United States. Revivals broke out in the Adventist church all across America. The Adventist church began to grow extremely rapidly because they were uplifting the matchless charms of Christ. The, the 1888 message was going forth, and Ellen White said this in the book Christ Our Righteousness, page 56. The loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. So the latter rain began to fall then as Jesus was rediscovered anew, afresh, as the cross was uplifted. The loud cry on white says it's already begun. She says that this is the light of the glory that's going to light the world. Unfortunately, there was complacency that set in again, but that does not mitigate against what happened then. 
what was the message of 1888? If I had to summarize what really happened there, I think there are two aspects of it that as the church recaptures today, we are motivated by the love of the cross. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. First aspect of the message is this, that Jesus Christ longs to save us more than we long to be saved. When you look at the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd goes out after the sheep and longs to save the sheep. You look at the parable of the lost coin, the woman sweeps the house till she finds the coin. When you look at the parable of the, the loving father whose arms are wide open. So one of the principles that took place in 1888 was this, that Jesus longs to save you, that the initiative of salvation is Christ's. He is the one that sends his Holy Spirit to our hearts to convict us of sin. He is the one that draws us out to love him. He is the one that took the initiative on the cross. He is the one that longs to save you. Every step of your life, Christ is working with his Holy Spirit to save you. Every, every moment of your life, all of heaven is being poured out to save you. He reveals himself in the sun, the moon, and the stars, the heavens, the chorus. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Every time we look up at the stars, Jesus is saying, I am the all-powerful creator. I love you. I want to save you. In every blossoming flower, Jesus is saying, smell the perfume of the flower. It tells you of the perfume of my love. I want to save you. In every sunset that we see the glorious red crimson across the sky, Jesus says, this reveals my love to you. We see it in nature. We see his love in the kindness of friends, in the goodness shared with others in our life when they come self-sacrificially to support us. We see his goodness in the providences of life, but most of all, we see his love revealed in scripture and echoing and re-echoing down the corners of time, speaking to us is that message that Jesus longs to save us more than we long to be saved. The second aspect of that message preached by Wagner and Jones was very simple, that Jesus came to redeem us from both the penalty and the power of sin. They saw in Christ a Christ that was big enough, a Christ that was great enough to take the burden of guilt off our shoulders, to provide for us, as Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So they saw in Christ one who was so large, so great, that he could take the burden of guilt away. But they saw also in this Christ, a Christ that drew near. They saw Jesus who could deliver us from not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in our life. They saw Jesus who could deliver from alcohol, from tobacco, from lust, from anger, from bitterness or resentment. They saw a Christ who would reside in the human heart, on the throne of the human heart, and take full possession of the believer through his Holy Spirit. This is the Jesus that was proclaimed there. When Ellen White was asked, what is justification by faith? In the book, a little devotional book, The Faith I Live by page 111, she said, what is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men or women see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. What is the appeal of God to you and to me? It's an appeal to our knees and to say, God, I am nothing, but you're everything. Not I, but Christ. Be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ. Be seen, be known, be heard. Lord, lift the burden of guilt. Cleanse my heart from the condemnation of sin. Lord, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit and transform my life so I can reveal the image of Christ like those disciples who had days of preparation, days of heart searching, days of prayer, days of confession, days of repentance, days of coming together in unity. So we come. The churches in Carolina, seeking God in prayer. We come asking God to reveal to our hearts the matchless charms of Christ. We come asking God 
to, to draw near. We come asking God to help us to see a Savior who's with us every moment, trying to impress our hearts and minds with how much he loves us and how much he wants us in heaven. We, ask, we come asking God to wean us from earthliness, to take away from our hearts the affections from this earth, to put them on heaven. Every revival in every age is the result of a passionate commitment to Christ, and men and women are filled by the Holy Spirit. Let me take you to another revival, the Welsh Revival. The Welsh Revival is one of the classic revivals in history, not a Seventh-day Adventist revival. Now, I need to give you a little disclaimer here. The Welsh Revival started out initially, the first few years, as a mighty powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, as some revivals do, it ended up in fanaticism. But that does not do away with what happened early. Evan Roberts was 16 years old. The churches in Wales in 1903, 1904 were, were cold. They were formal. There'd be these large cathedrals, five people coming, 10 people, old people. And Evan Roberts was 16 years old. He was working in the mines with his father. He began to pray, and he began to earnestly seek God. He prayed for five years for revival. Nothing apparently happened. He got other young people praying on one Sunday night in a place, a chapel called Moriah in uh, Lausburg in, in Wales. This group of young people, now 15 or 20, were praying. The Spirit of God came down upon them. These young people fanned out. They began to go out and share their testimonies of what God They began praying in small groups. They began studying the Bible together in prayer. They began sharing the uplifted Christ. Miracles began to happen. 100,000 people were baptized or came to Christ in six months. Judges under the Spirit of God, would lead convicts who they were judging in their courtrooms to Christ. And they would, the courtrooms become places of revival. Schools would spend three times a day praying. They would stop for prayers. There's an interesting report in the London newspaper. There was one saloon owner, pub owner in English jargon. There was one pub owner that writes and says, I had to shut down my pub or my saloon because I only sold five pence of alcohol this past evening. A reporter from London came down to Cardiff, Wales to check on the revival. He saw a policeman, he said, where's the revival? The policeman straightened up and he said, it's right here in this universe. God has changed my life, but I'll tell you where the church is if you want to go there. Now, one of the big problems they had, you know, Wales is, is known for its mining, coal mining. They had a big problem. The pit ponies who were pulling the carts full of coal would not pull anymore because the miners weren't yelling at them, cursing and swearing. So the ponies didn't know how to pull the carts. And so as a result of that, the miners had to teach the ponies a whole new language. Revival broke out powerfully. Evan Roberts gives four steps for revival. Four steps how revival can take place in your church. He said, first, seek God on your knees and confess all known sin. Secondly, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in your life. In other words, as you study the word of God and as the Holy Spirit touches you, if there is something doubtful, something that you're saying, is this God's will or not God's will? and the Spirit kid begins convicting you, how do you know when you're praying whether or not it's your will or God's will? If you're only willing to give up the thing you know you love most, if it's God's will, you know then that you're seeking God's will and not your own. So, Evan Roberts said, deal with and get rid of the anything that's doubtful in your life. When the Spirit convicts you of something, some TV program, some article of diet, something in your life that's not in harmony with his will, when he convicts you of that, pray about it. And as that conviction gets deeper in your heart, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful. Thirdly, be willing to obey the Spirit instantly. Once the Spirit convicts you of something, don't play around with it. Be willing to obey the Spirit instantly. And fourthly, as God's doing something in your own life, confess Christ publicly. 
witness to others as the matchless charms of Christ are revealed to you, as we're charmed by his grace and redeemed by his love, as we meet together in these small prayer groups, as you go home and organize these prayer groups, as you go home and take the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of John and just read it. Don't make a lot of comments. Just read it and pray over what you're reading in a small group. What would happen if 100 people, 200 people, 500 people, 1,000 people in Carolina, let's suppose out of our 25,000 members here, we had 1,000 prayer groups. Let's suppose that those prayer groups had groups of three or four people in them. Let's suppose we had 4,000 people that were reading the gospel of Matthew, reading the gospel of Mark, reading the gospel of, uh, of John, and asking Jesus to reveal himself to them, praying over the text, sharing together the beauty of God's grace, and going out from that to share with their friends and neighbors how wonderful Jesus is. What would happen here in Carolina? I thank God for a leadership team here with your conference president and staff that are encouraging those kind of small group ministries, those kind of prayer ministries that take place that can make a difference. Notice volume eight, page 21. Let Christians put away all what? Dissension and give themselves to God for the saving of the lost. Let them ask in faith for the promised blessing Next three words, read them together with me, please. It will come. God indeed is going to use you. God is going to do something special for you. God brought you to this meeting for a purpose. Some man, some woman, some boy, some girl, somebody sitting here is going to go home with a new sense of the moving of the Spirit in their life. They're going to go home with a new vision to organize a prayer group, a new vision to be more faithful in their Bible study, a new vision to know Christ better, a new vision to share Jesus with their, their friends around them. God will have a final generation of committed men and women whom he uses to complete his mission on earth. Jesus' promise, we've looked at the all-encompassing nature of the promise. We looked at the all-embracing conditions of the promise. What about the all-empowering results? What's going to happen when men and women, God's people, are filled with his spirit and go out to witness for the glory of his name? Revelation 18.1, after these things, he says, I saw, John says, I saw it. This is a prophecy. This is a prediction of the future. John says, I saw it. Another angel come down from heaven. This fourth angel joins with the three angels of Revelation 14, 6 to 12, to give power, come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. The earth will be lightened with the glory of God as the angel comes down and he cries with a loud voice. That's the loud cry. The great power is the power of the latter rain. The power of the latter rain comes to give the loud cry. The power of the latter rain giving the loud cry, lightens the earth with the glory of God. Evil will not have the last word. God will. Disease will not have the last word. What, everybody? God will. Poverty will not have the last word. God will. Sickness will not have the last word. What is it? God will. Suffering will not have the last word. God will. Man will not have the last word. God will. Why will he? Servants of God, great controversy, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven they have met in prayer groups. Jesus is their all in all, committed to him, filled with his spirit, the latter rain has been poured out. The loud cry is given. And these servants of God, with their faces lighted up with the glory of God, shining with holy consecration, hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought.
the sick will be healed. Signs and wonders will follow the believers. The message will be carried not so much by argument as by the conviction of the Spirit of God. We have sown literature by the millions. We've given books out by the millions. We have had Bible studies by the millions. Evangelistic meetings have been held around the world. Students have been educated in our schools. Millions have been helped by our hospitals. But all of that work will come to one glorious, climactic climax. Sons and daughters that once walked with us will be lightened with the glory of God. The Spirit will touch them and the faithful work of their parents and the prayers of their parents will come to fruition and they will come back and participate with us giving God's last day message. Hindus and Muslims and skeptics will be impressed by the Spirit of God and the message will be carried by not so much by argument, but by the Spirit of God. The earth will be lightened with his glory. And all over this world, the work of God will triumph. What did Jesus say? He said, the gates of hell, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I thank God that the message of Christ and his soon coming and the triumph of the remnant church is certain. This church is not going to break up. This church is not going to dissolve. God is not going to raise up another movement because the seven churches of the book of Revelation climax with the Laodicean church, and there is no eighth church that comes out of Laodicea. Laodicea is to be revived. It is not to be cast off. Laodicea is to receive the outpouring of the Spirit as it arises and shines because its light comes. Thank God that you and I can be part of the closing work. Thank God that his promise is for you. It's for me. Is that the desire of your heart? To be one of these servants of God, filled with the Spirit, and to lighten the earth with the glory of God. Is it your desire to be part of this closing work you know, some people ask about why do so many of our, late, our young people at times leave the church? I suggest to you, if we challenge them with something bigger than themselves, something larger than themselves, something greater than themselves, to be part of a work in the great controversy between good and evil, in this divine drama of destiny, to be part of something big for God. There is nothing greater, nothing grander, nothing larger than giving your life to something that counts. Every one of us and every one of you sitting here give your life to something. Some give their life to pleasure. Some give their life to making a name for themselves. Some give their life for money. But all of that is going to go down. All of that one day is going to be like grains of sand that slip through the finger. Like a shadow that dances away. But give your life to something that matters. That a million years from now, it will matter for eternity. Is that your decision tonight? Would you like to stand and say, Jesus, I want to give my life to something that really matters. Let's pray, oh my Father. Like grains of sand, life is fleeting. It slips through our fingers. As James says in James 1, like a vapor, it goes up in smoke. The things of time will soon be gone. Wean our affections from things of earth. Help us to focus on eternity. Help us give our lives for something that really counts. Send us from this place 
with a new commitment, with a broader vision, with a greater passion to be filled with your spirit and to go out and share the everlasting gospel with the world. Thank you, Lord, that the sparks of revival are going to begin to be fanned into a mighty flame to light Carolina for Christ and prepare men and women for his soon return. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.